Our text this morning will be Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we ask that you would use your word mightily in our midst today. That it would take deep root in our hearts and bear much fruit, not just today, not just this week, but throughout our lives. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There comes a time when you have to put into practice what you have learned. You can study all you want in school or at a university, but eventually you've got to be able to show others that you've mastered what you've learned and that it has some practical application. This is true even for the liberal arts, that there is a purpose for what you have learned and that it makes your life and the lives of others around you better. This is also true of biblical truth. For you see, the truth of God's word comes to us, and first and foremost, we are to hear it, we are to believe it, and to confess that it is true. But we also must be changed by it. Our lives must reflect that truth that has come to us, Otherwise, we don't truly understand it. We don't really believe it unless it takes root in our lives. And this morning, Paul is going to turn the page, as it were, in the book of Ephesians. It's almost as if there is an invisible divider between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And if it were a page, and we were to turn that page... Written on the page would be, now, on to application. Because Paul is about to apply the great truths that he has given to us in the first three chapters. And the truth that he wants us to apply will change our lives and what he calls our walk or our way of life. And so this morning I would like us to see three things about our walk. First, 
Paul describes the calling to walk. The calling that God gives to us to walk. Second, we see the character of our walk or what our walk should be made up of. And then thirdly, we see the centrality of our walk, the end toward which our walk tends. The calling to walk, the character of our walk, and the centrality of our walk. Let's begin then by looking at the calling to walk. Paul begins by saying, I, a prisoner of, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, in verse 1. Now, this, as I've said, marks a change in the letter. What Paul has been doing is he has been instructing us. He has been instructing us in what God has done. You recall we've seen that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. That we are adopted as children. That we have the forgiveness of sins. That we have an eternal inheritance in heaven. That we were dead but we are now alive. Paul has described all of these great truths about who we are. He has also been instructing us in who God is. And so we have seen that our God is a great Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the great triune God. Paul has told us of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead with power. He has described our God as a gracious and merciful God. And that God has committed the ministry of the gospel to his church, to his children. And so now Paul turns to what we might call in modern parlance, the so what. What does that mean? Now, this is a good opportunity for us to understand biblical and especially Pauline theology. You see, Paul has a habit of doing this. At the first portion of one of his letters, he will describe the way things are. Specifically, who we are in Christ. And then at some point he will turn and he will come to the implications of who we are. That is, what we are to do in Christ. To use technical preaching terms for this, it's a gospel indicative and a gospel imperative. The indicative means, this is who you are. It is a statement. There is nothing to do. You are justified. You are adopted. You are forgiven because of what God has done. The gospel imperative is the command that comes to us from God's word of how we are to live, that we are not to lie to one another, that we are to be united to one another, that we are to forgive one another, that we are to love one another. These are gospel commands. They are not options. They are commands that come from the very mouth of God. Paul does this over and over again. We see it in the book of Romans, perhaps the most doctrinal of all the New Testament books. The first 11 chapters lay out the glories of man's sin and God's redemption of his people from the depths of their sin. The glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And even touching into the eternal decree of God himself. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, Now therefore, I beseech you, based on everything I've said, now therefore, I instruct you to act accordingly with it. 
In the book of Galatians, Paul lays out how we have freedom in Christ. How we are justified by faith alone in the first four chapters of Galatians. And then in chapter 5, he begins to say, you are free in Christ. Now live in accordance with that liberty. In the book of Colossians, the first two chapters, Paul lays out the glories of the pre-existent Christ and how he came and became man that he might redeem a people for himself. And then in chapter 3 of Colossians, he begins to describe for us how we must live based on that truth. Now there is something we must understand about this. I'm not just trying to give you a lesson in preaching. The indicative, who you are, And the imperative, what you must do, always go together. You cannot have indicative without imperative. You cannot have imperative without indicative. They must go together. We must know who we are in Christ and then act accordingly. And you cannot reverse the order. You cannot say, you must do in order that you might be. No, we act in accordance with who we are, what God has done in our lives, because God is the initiator. This is what Paul has been saying over and over again in the first three chapters of Ephesians, that before the foundations of the world, God chose, that God acted, that God gave us faith, that God brought us to life. All of the activity is God's. And then once we are made alive in Christ by faith, then we can act. You see, it is just as foolish to expect Lazarus to get up and dance while he's dead as it is to expect Lazarus to lay in the tomb after Jesus has brought him to life. These two things go together. You see, our lives have been changed and Paul wants us to know this. And so he describes this by telling us to walk in this manner. Now, this verb here, To walk, Paul uses 32 times in his letters. And not once does it have the simple meaning of walking. This is not like to walk your dog. This is not like I need some exercise so I'm going to walk the mall a few times. This is not I need to lose some weight so I'm going to get some exercise. No. This is The way that we live. Paul is using this verb to describe the entirety of our life. It is comprehensive. It describes how we interact with others. How we think. How we speak. How we are when we are alone. It is everything about our actions and being that is our lives. And what Paul is saying is that what has been done for us by God makes a difference in our lives. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, there is a tendency in our lives, and especially in our culture, to take things for granted. Don't we? We take for granted what we think should come to us, and we're upset when it doesn't come easily. If you don't believe me, take this easy test. This week, go and look at any number of articles online about the new iPhone, and listen to people scream and yell because... The phone is not what they think it should be for them. That it's owed to them. That they should get it because they want it. But you see, this is part of our culture. 
There is a whole tendency now in the workforce to have to deal with those who are an up-and-coming generation, who are graduating from university, and who expect promotions and other things to be handed to them at work. You see, this is something that has its grips on our society. But what Paul is describing for us is we cannot take for granted what God has done. We must understand that it changes who we are. Now, one of the first excuses that comes to our mind, perhaps we're not brave enough to uh, put, put them out vocally, but we say in our own minds is, well, Paul, pastor, you don't know my situation. I mean, it's all well and good to ask people to act in a certain fashion, but, you know, I've got things that are pretty hard for me. Let me list off for you all of the circumstances that I have in my life. Now, Paul, I think, is proving once again here that he's a wise pastor. Because before we can even get the objection out of our mouths, Paul shoots it down. Do you see how he does that in verse 1? He says, I therefore, a prisoner urge you to walk. You think your life's hard? I'm in prison. I'm in chains. And why am I in prison? Because I was preaching the gospel. Unjustly, not for anything I did. You see, our circumstances are not an excuse to disregard the word of God. To move away from the commands of God. Now, our circumstances may make it more difficult We may need to seek the Lord more fervently in prayer. We may need to have others come alongside and lift us up. But it is not an excuse. Because you see, we are no longer our own. If we have given up ourselves and we trust by faith in Jesus Christ, if we have said that we cannot do it any longer and we cannot solve the problem of our sin, of our anger if we've said that we must lay it all on the cross of Jesus, and in Him we must trust eternally, then we must understand we are bought with a price. We are not our own any longer. We are who we are because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done. Now, this is not an addition to the Christian life. This is not how we separate the really good Christians from the regular old Christians. This is something that is central to life in Christ. And Paul is urging us on. The language he uses is emotional. He says, I urge you to walk. And this word for urge is the word that we might describe. He is encouraging us. It is the same verb that means to come alongside someone. Paul knows this is for our good. And so he is entreating with us, encouraging us, in the same way that you might encourage your child who is learning to ride a bike by running alongside them, holding the bike, encouraging them. They can do it. You can do it. That's what Paul's doing. He wants us to succeed. He knows this is why God has performed his work, to change us. But it is not just that our calling from God is the impetus or the motivation for our change. It is also the standard of who we are. Paul could have given us some arbitrary standard that he made up. Paul could have set up a system of rewards. You know, if you don't lie to anyone for the next six months, God will give you ten years of great health. 
You know, if you are faithful to your spouse for the next year, you'll get more money than you ever imagined. There is no system of rewards here. God doesn't say you'll get things if you obey me. You see, the call to action comes after we have received everything we can receive in Christ. God doesn't hold anything back like a carrot. He's already given us everything in Christ. Now just stop for a moment and think about how unlike us that is. How many of you in your homes say to your children, go ahead, finish all that dessert, and then after you finish the dessert, go clean your room, and then expect it to get done? That doesn't happen, right? We do the reverse. Clean your room, and then you can have dessert. But you see, that's not how God is. God is sovereign. He gives first, because when He gives, He enables us to obey Him. We have the capacity and the gratitude. You see, our calling is to walk worthy of the Lord's calling, not because we owe God. You don't see anywhere in this text Paul implying that we could lose our salvation for failing to walk in a certain way. Paul doesn't even use the phrase, you know, God expects this of you. He'll be disappointed if you don't. It is a straight-up encouragement and command based on and rooted in the work of Christ. If we have been changed, if we have been renewed, then we should live a life in accordance with that. We are to live worthy, Paul says. Now, this word worthy is a very interesting word. In the Greek, it gets its original root meaning from the idea of a scale. Now, when I say scale, I don't mean those electronic gizmos in your bathroom now that you step on and they tell you your body fat percentage, what you ate for lunch, what you will eat tomorrow for breakfast, and all this other stuff. Now, I'm talking really old school, where you have the two platforms with the balancing bar in the middle, and you put something on one part, and what happens? It drags down. And you balance it by putting something on the other side, and it what? Drags it down. This word for worthy, its original meaning is to drag down. And you see, the image Paul wants you to have in your mind is that you are to live a life that is worthy of the calling that God has placed on you. So everything we think of in the first three chapters of Ephesians, adoption, forgiveness, eternal life, inheritance, unity, family, we are to live a life worthy of that calling, in accordance with it, corresponding to it, suitably for it. You see, this is why Paul takes so much time to lay out the indicative for us. Because it helps us to see and understand how we are to walk. And when Paul calls us, for example, to forgive, we forgive because we know we are forgiven. When Paul calls us to be united, we are united with others because we know that God has united us with his people. When we are called to love, we know that we must love in accordance with the love that God has placed on us. It is in accordance with. This is why you must first understand the gospel. Then you change your life. 
You cannot reverse the order of that. And only biblical Christianity has that order. Every other so-called religion tells you to reform your life and to hope that somehow it might be enough to gain you a reward. The God of the Bible, the true God of the universe, tells you, I will lavish my love and grace upon you. And then, because you are changed in gratitude, live in accordance with what you have been given. This is the calling to walk. The next thing that Paul begins to describe is the character of our walk. What does this look like? If we are to walk worthy with this calling, give us some, a skeleton to put the flesh and the muscles on, Paul. Let us know what we are supposed to be doing. Give us some categories that Paul does. He gives us two broad categories. The first is he tells us we are to be always putting others first. The second is that we are to be showing love. Let's look first at putting others first. Paul begins by telling us that we are to be selfless. He tells us that we are to walk, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. Now, it makes sense for Paul to begin by telling us to be selfless, because after all, that is the main action of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus inconvenienced himself by coming to earth, by becoming man and dwelling among men in a sinful world. Jesus sacrificed himself that we might have forgiveness and life. You see, living for others is the definition of who Jesus is. And so Paul tells us first to be humble. Now, this word here for humble actually has at its root the phrase lowliness of mind. Now, what you have to understand about this is that this was incredibly countercultural. You see, in our culture, we at least like to pretend we are humble, don't we? If someone is obviously a braggart, that doesn't strike us right. We like to be noticed, but we, wanna, we want others to say something first. We don't want to bring it up ourselves, right? In Greek culture, humility or lowliness of mind, thinking less of yourself, was for losers, These were people who were despised. The prevailing norm was to be someone who was called great-souled. That is, someone who was self-sufficient. Someone who knew who they were and could accomplish it. Who had great tales to tell about themselves. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, that still, that thread runs in our day today, doesn't it? I have to laugh because there is an invention of a whole term today called the humble brag, in which by beginning a statement with something slightly condescending towards yourself, you draw all the attention to yourself about how good you are. You see, that's a part of our sinful nature, of our brokenness. But humility here that Paul describes it is putting others before ourselves. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, same word, count others more significant than yourselves. Now just ask yourself this question. How often do you count others 
and their needs and their accomplishments as more significant than your own. You can only do that by the power of Christ. And this is essential to unity. We can only be humble if we knew who we were and what we have received from God. The second way that Paul tells us to put others first is to be gentle. Now, there's another word that seems out of place to us, doesn't it? It has images in our minds of being a doormat or of being unmanly. To be gentle seems to be weak, doesn't it? It's not something that we expect to be honored. We expect toughness and grit to be honored, not gentleness. But the root here of this word, to be gentle, means to be considerate of others. That is, not to be overly impressed with yourself. Have you ever had someone walk up to you and say, you know, you really need to get over yourself? By the power of the Holy Spirit and God's grace, that's what Paul's telling us today. That we're not as great as we think we are. That we are who we are because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so that should change our relationships with others. It should change how we treat others. We should treat them well. An old translation of this word is meekness. Now this word meekness or gentleness is anything but weakness. And we know this because the two people in the scripture who are described as being the most meek help us to see this. (coughs) The first person to be described as the meekest man on the earth was Moses. Now I ask you, is a man who walks into the court of the most powerful emperor on the face of the earth and who declares, let my people go, weak? Is a man who calls down plagues from heaven weak? Is a man who stands and speaks with God face to face weak? No. You see, gentleness is strength under control. Perhaps some of you remember the image from not the 9-11 disaster, but a previous disaster, the Oklahoma City bombing in which there was a picture of this gigantic fireman holding a little small child that was about as big as his forearm, cradling the child and protecting the child. The fireman looked like he could hold up a building by himself. And yet all his strength was under control, protecting that child. That's what gentleness is. You don't need to be weak to be a Christian. You need to be strong and under control to follow Jesus. For you see, the other man who is described as meek is much more than a man. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, same word, and lowly in heart. Does anyone dare call the Lord Jesus Christ weak? Who had the wrath of God poured out upon him to save sinners? Gentleness is what we should be marked by. The second broad category of the character of our walk that Paul describes is that we should be showing love. And Paul does this by moving on next to patience. Now, 
Patience is difficult to have today, isn't it? We live in such a fast-paced world in which everything comes so quickly, we just simply can't wait. Isn't that true? If you're anything like me, you spent time standing in front of the microwave, and you can't wait for the microwave to finish and beep to stop it. You pull the door at three seconds and you hit clear. Because you just can't wait. Now some of us are old enough to remember that if you wanted to heat up food, you had to first turn on the oven, wait 20 minutes for it to warm up, put the food in, wait 20 minutes for the food to heat up. Now we can't wait 30 seconds for the microwave to do its job. Patience is not in large supply. Because we have been conditioned to get what we want when we want it. But Paul calls us to patience. And if you've ever met anyone who is short-fused, who you're afraid to be around because you never know when they're going to blow their top, patience is the exact opposite of that. It is being long-fused. The word actually means long of anger. It means that we bear with others. Now, lest you think, Well, I'm patient nearly all the time, except for if somebody provokes me. If somebody pokes at me, well, then I can't be patient, but other than that, I'm patient. You have to understand that the concept of patience includes being provoked. Being patient is being slow with your anger, especially when you're provoked. And you see, Paul describes this for us in a very... Self-descriptive manner. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he describes the patience of Jesus with respect to Paul's own salvation. Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience. Do you see what Paul's getting at there? Is there anyone who could have provoked Jesus more than Paul? He blasphemed. He persecuted the church. He murdered Christians. And Jesus showed his patience by showing mercy rather than judgment. There is another aspect to patience that I think we need to think about and incorporate in our lives. And that is, patience carries with it the concept of being tranquil while awaiting the outcome. Now, again, I think we often see the opposite of this. You know, when you're in your home, and especially with young children, you say, you know, we're going to do this, or I think this might happen. And the kids can't even sit still, right? Did it happen? Did it happen? Is it going on? Are we ready? What happened? And every 30 seconds, are we there yet? Did it happen? Are we there yet? Right? Over and over and over again. Whereas Paul tells us to be tranquil. I'm going to challenge you this morning with some way that you can show patience that God has given to us in His providence. Are you tranquil right now with respect to the outcome of the election in November? I don't mean the outcome doesn't matter, because that's not what Paul says. But are you tranquil? Are you at peace knowing that God is in control no matter what? And that I don't need to fret And I don't need to worry. 
Not because it's unimportant, not because good things will always happen, but because in the ultimate scheme of things, God is in control. And you see, that's what separates followers of Jesus from the world. They worry, they fret, they have no hope. We do. And it doesn't mean we need to be happy about circumstances. It's not like we can say, the best thing that ever happened to me was that I got cancer. Oh, I just love the fact that our country's falling apart. No. But I know that no matter what the circumstances are, God is in control. We're also called to bear with one another, Paul says, in love. We have to understand that all our relationships are affected by us thinking the best of others. We must do this. We must bear with others. We must tolerate others. Now, this is not the modern notion of toleration. The modern notion of tolerance is, you have to agree with everything I say, thank me for saying it, otherwise I will attack you. That's not tolerance. Tolerance is bearing with others who provoke us. Bearing with others who are wrong. Putting up with hurts that others give to us. That's what this means. And this cannot be done just to gain favor. This is not something we can work up in ourselves. It must be something that comes from a heart that is changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the word here for love here is the other-centered God word for love. We are to look to others before ourselves. The third and final thing that we see this morning is the centrality of our walk. Now, it is important for us to understand that all of these actions that we take are not for ourselves. We do these things, Paul says, for the unity of God's people. Look at verse 3. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this shows the connection between God's work and our conduct. Because what has Paul been telling us God is doing? He is breaking down barriers. He is uniting people in the church. God is unifying his people. And so now he is telling us to walk in a manner consistent with that. Putting unity as one of our highest goals. It makes sense that God wants us to live in accordance with what He is doing. Now notice something else. God does not expect us to bring this about. Do you see that? In chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, it describes the work of God in uniting His people. In chapter 4, verse 3, it describes us as being eager to maintain. The unity. And this word here for maintain means to guard something, to preserve something. The picture you should have in your mind is of a watchman who is on guard preserving something that he has been told to preserve. You see, the actions of our Lord come first. We are only called to preserve this unity, but we are to be zealous about it. Paul says we are to be eager. This word eager means that we are to make every effort. It's not a grudging thing. Well, I guess I have to get along with that person because they're in the same church as me. I really wish I wouldn't. Hope they move to Arizona. 
or Alaska or Thailand. No. No, we are called to be eager, to be active, to be seeking out opportunities to unite the people of God, to be diligent and hardworking. That's what Paul tells us. And you see, this unity is harmony within the people of God, and it reflects the unity of God. Do you see how Paul describes the oneness of God here? He does it in verses 4, 5, and 6. He talks about the one spirit. And then in verse 5, he talks about the one Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, he talks about the one God and Father of all. You see, nowhere is the unity that God would have us have seen more clearly than in the work of the Trinity in the redemption of God's people. The Holy Spirit works unity by coordinating the body of Christ, by empowering each of us to work together. The Lord Jesus Christ creates unity, for He creates the one faith, Paul speaks of, because our one faith is a faith and trust in Him as the object of our faith. We participate in one baptism, which is a baptism into the name of Jesus, at His command. We have one hope, And that is the return of Jesus to claim his own. The Father works unity because he is the one over all his creation. He is the one over all of the church. And we have the unity that we have as the people of God as being a part of the family of God. We saw that previously, that all fatherhood and familyness is named after our Father. Well, God has done a great work. And that work has an effect on our lives. And so what we must do now is to look to the Lord that we might live lives worthy of the calling with which He has called us. The instruction that we have been given in God's truth is for us to put into practice. And when we put that into practice in our lives... We will teach others of the glories of God and the value of Jesus. We will be witnesses to His grace. The Apostle Paul and I and God Himself by His word call you this morning to live lives worthy of your calling in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this calling with which you have called us, that we are preserved because of your work. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would equip us to live lives that are worthy of this calling, that we would be gentle and patient, that we would put others first, that we would show love to one another, that we would be eager for the unity of your people. This we ask, O Lord, in the power and in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.